Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Krishnadas Pilgrim Heart Hour. In this podcast, Krishnadas shares his warm-hearted and down-to-earth path to the divine. If you are interested in supporting Krishnadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/kd. You mentioned this morning the uh, the yogi who attain nirvana by faith. Yes. I, I never heard that before. I mean... The Srinika, the wanderer. A wanderer? Yeah, it's called, that's what they call him. In the, the wanderer, in the, really? Srinika, the wanderer. I, I'm not sure why they say wanderer. Maybe it just means <coughs> Ramana, you know? For some reason in that particular translation, they call it Srinika, Srinika, S-H-E-R-E-N-I-K-A. The wanderer who, who realized transcendent wisdom... Uh, through faith. Wow. 
and um, well, that was last night, and and uh, about how uh, faith could be a path to wisdom, uh, to the faith could be a path to the experience of reality. That is, hmm. which then led to leads to salvation. In that reality is then experienced as completely blissful, embracing, nurturing, um, compassion, mm. and uh, <clears throat> it's uh, it's an exceptional thing in the context of Prajnaparamita because in that context, uh, wisdom, which has a symbol of a sword with a flame tip. That cuts through the knots of and knots of confusion and delusion and ignorance. There's the idea of sort of a critical, penetrating analysis of superficial reality, apparent reality, then sort of taking it apart piece by piece, uh, sort of drilling down through it to discover the the ground field state of the clear light of the void, the clear light of bliss. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the claim is, uh, the claim is that, um, that uh, Buddha and his followers and other great siddhas um, anticipated the discoveries that were announced by Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg in 1926 in Copenhagen, that reality has no indivisible particle and that reality dissolves under analysis, so that the, which defeated materialism in the West, mm-hmm. but um, in, in the in the pro- progress of modern science, but which modern science has been in denial about mm-hmm. since 1926, almost 90, 90 years now, because they feel too insecure with the idea that reality is illusory, a conventional reality is illusory. It doesn't mean it's not does not exist. And, but it's illusory. There's no capturing theory mm-hmm. of it other than the negation of um, any misplaced absoluteness. So that, you know, that takes a lot of what they call vipassana and shamatha. Shamatha or samadhi is one-pointed concentration. And vipassana is this kind of critical seeing that, that looks to see the reality of whatever appears to it whatever you see, and then in examining the reality, as you go finer and finer, it, it comes apart mm-hmm. and it dissolves. And um, so then you were mentioned earlier about the definition of faith. So when they, now one thing that it does not mean, because the, the Buddha was always very uh, uh, warned a great deal about it, that uh, blind faith, right or faith that is against common sense or against reason, is um, avoid, to be avoided. And not only because, since it has no reason, it might be faith in the wrong thing, but also because it's weak. You know, if you have faith that there's going to be dinner in the, in the um, Lhasa Inn because you had it yesterday, you have a reason to believe to go to Lhasa Inn, and you have like a motive. If you believe there's dinner in the, the half a mile this direction in the woods, you have no experience. There's no reason for you to think that. Mm-hmm. 
it it's, it might be a mistake to hike off through the woods. You might, you might get lost and eaten by a bear. Well, that was dinner. That's <laughs> for somebody else. <laughs> so, so, so one thing, faith is not necessarily is an anti-reason thing, but on the other hand, uh, reality. Then this in the critical way of approach, the sort of wisdom way of approach, which is the more usual way in that tradition. Um, there's this thing where reason takes you to the brink, but doesn't capture the experience. And actually the experience is beyond some sort of reason formulaic thing. And, um, it, it, and therefore they sometimes say it's known by the method of not knowing. And then people get wrongly into thinking by, th by understanding that. Nowadays there are some people who misunderstand that by thinking that as long as they don't know anything, they're enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> That's my category. But I, but I disappointed them when he attained enlightenment. He didn't sit under the tree and go, duh. <laughs> that was a big disappointment for them. Mm. So, but, so, so in other words, that's where the opening of the faith comes in. Because the faith is like somebody... In a way, they, they of course, they would argue that in previous life, that such a person, the Shrenika, the wanderer, mm -hmm. had investigated his world uh -huh. in previous lives, when he was a him or a her or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And so he had a strong intuition that it must be good that, you know, that, right, like, you know, Hare Krishna, Hare Rama, you know. The idea there is Rama, Krishna, they are more grounded in reality and therefore more powerful than Ravana or whatever the different, you know, Kamsa, you know, the king who was killing the babies, you know. Yeah. And uh, and so the, the, there's this idea that goodness is more powerful than evil. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's reasonable if one investigates experience in a certain way and doesn't listen to propaganda because evil always propagandizes itself that it is powerful and frightens people, and then it claims it's going to help them. Mm -hmm. And uh, whereas good doesn't need to do that, but if one analyzes one's experience and the experience of the world and history and everything, good is actually clearly more powerful. For example, if evil was more powerful in the modern world, we would already be in nuclear winter, a hundred percent. That we would not actually be sitting. Manila would be nuclear slag heap. It's only a hundred miles from New York City, mm. and um, so that's a reasonable faith. So, so Shrenika had the, when he heard about non-duality. When he heard about this is really nirvana, and it's unreally not nirvana, but it's still something. And then there's a way of moving from one to the other. And he was wandering, looking. He was seeker. He was looking for truth, reality. He was looking at himself for his own reality, his own experience. And he didn't have a lot of sort of analytic equipment. He didn't read Nagarjuna and have the, you know, Madhyamaka and so on. But he clung with one-pointed faith to discarding any appearance of something being real that was not pure goodness. Uh-huh. Right. And he eventually... Because, because why, why the critical thing is necessary normally is that we consciously can immediately understand, of course, you know, there couldn't be an absolute. 
outside the world that was relevant to any relative being in the world because then that relative being in the world couldn't get outside into an absolute because absolute would be disconnected from the relative. So it would be irrelevant. We can easily understand that. We can easily understand that we are a relational process. <laughs> easily. Yeah. Because absolute sure. means the opposite of relative. Right. It's relative, absolute. Right? No. Right? Yes, absolutely. So, so it's senseless to say that. But we can easily understand that. But the unconscious is frightened to be completely immersed in relativity. Because then it, does, it has an idea that it won't know what happened. It has an idea there'll be a control if I can just have a grounding in something absolute. Mm -hmm. But of course, if you're grounded in it, it's relative. If you can stand on it, it's relative. Mm -hmm. So they have that same, you know, what is the ground? of The ground is groundlessness. You know, emptiness is the groundless ground, you know, in other words. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, so the, the faith, so the, the bhakti uh, already has the idea, the concept that Krishna is love, that Krishna is the power, is Vishnu, Rama. Mm -hmm. And Rama wins out over the evil. And so, and those are just stories, they know that, and then they have a bigger vision of Vishnu, you know, lying on the shesha, you know, and the waking up, and it's, a, it's an aeon, and sleeping, it's not, you know. So the idea of a benevolent, positive energy is the strong energy of the universe. They have that idea. Mm -hmm. So then faith, chanting, bringing up the emotion, and in the process, you know, find, coming up with an internal obstruction and fears and things, and but and trust in trusting them outward and so forth, then they they finally do reach an experience of that. And uh, that's the same as the person who critically casts, cuts through all kinds of yeah. false appearances and reasons, that, that, in that sense. So when you, like someone, when I was, uh, when I, in my life, when I, Maharaji is that place for me. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. uh, my idea, my my practice is to essentially see myself through his eyes rather than my own eyes. Mm, right. And so I'm constantly giving up my negative view of myself, mm -hmm. limited view of myself, because mm -hmm. that's not how he saw me. Mm -hmm. And I felt that with him, and mm -hmm. I feel that, you know, with him all the, whenever I can, mm -hmm. whenever it happens. So, mm -hmm. so that's analogous to the the cutting through. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a beautiful quote. Oh shit! I didn't bring my phone. <laughs> Right. But, oh. no, it'll still be beautiful tomorrow. <laughs> well, well, roughly, what is it? Well, it, Ramana Maharshi's talking about the two, the two, the path of surrender. Uh huh. And they say you can't surrender and expect the Lord to do what you want Him to do. You know. Uh huh. You know that's not surrender. Right. You know? So you have to keep letting go of. You know, surrender is surrender. Yeah. Uh, it can't be called surrender if, if you're upset that, that you're not getting what you want. Yes. Or that what you're surrendering to is not what you thought. <laughs> he used the word the Lord. Well, he used some, some word. I'm not sure what word. But well, yeah, 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 something like that. Yeah, yeah. That, that it's not, we'll talk about the Buddha. That the Lord is not as you imagine the Lord yeah, to be. The Lord exactly. is what the Lord is, yeah. which is something the, the beyond Lord actually, the imagination. 
It is. Beyond it may even concepts. be yourself. Yeah. That, it may. <laughs> but you didn't, one didn't imagine. Yeah. You know? Or, right. or, exactly. or, or yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the other, no, the Om, other. Om, take Om. Yeah, I'll take it. Om is the combination of A, U, M. You know, that's the, the short A, short U, and M. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And the A is the uh, body of all Buddhas. Mm. They were in the, in the Buddhist understanding, Tantra, you know, esoteric understanding of Om, Ah, is the body of all Buddhas, which is the same as the body of all deities and everything. And all Buddhas, they feel they are you and me and everyone here right now. Because they're also in every moment of time. Mm-hmm. To them, the, the stream of time is just also illusory. Not a complete illusion, but illusory, like an illusion. And they couldn't be perfected beings having abandoned us. Right. So they, they only become such a being by realizing that they are us and whatever we were in that present of theirs that we think of as a remote past present. And also in this future moment of ours, they're also here without having abandoned us. Mm-hmm. So the ah means that all bodies of all Buddhas are here, right here. The U means the speech of all Buddhas are right here. M means the mind of all Buddhas are right here. So for the for the esoteric Buddhist, Om invokes the immediacy of the true reality of this, which is which is the Lord, if one wants to personify it, or the clear light of the void, or whatever you want mm-hmm. to say. Whatever call it, no word even even emptiness yeah. is not even Frank. Complete word. Call it Frank. Frank. Right, but the key, the key, the best thing, though, to emptiness and such words are negational words. Yeah, and negational words are better because they're more into opening and surrendering. Mm-hmm. Because you never do see the non-elephant in this room. You never see the non-elephant. <laughs> you know, well, you just don't find the elephant. Yeah. Uh, it, right? It's also a question of temperament. What people, what fits a person, you know, in yes, a particular sure. place. So yes, but uh, when Maharaji said all one. Yes. That's the uh, ooh, mm, all, all the time, everywhere, you know. He didn't say, I'm all one, it's all one. He didn't say, we're all one. Yes. That's not what he said. He said, yes. sub ek, yes. all one. Yes. So, yeah. But, you know, all one contains double negation. It a, it's contain- a double negation. Because all means many things. Uh-huh. Right. And one is one thing. Right. So if it's all one, it was already all one when it was all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's say so, something. So he's not, in other words, the oneness doesn't destroy the manyness. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It of course. Maintains That's it. a mistake people make right. all the time. We do. Well, people do. And for the path of surrender, the realization of reality, emptiness, yeah. is the path of surrender, and which is why people have experiences, yogis, meditators, seekers, philosophers, they have experiences where everything disappears. Mm-hmm. And seems like what their notion of the word empty might mean. Mm-hmm. Right? 
And then they think, I realize empty guru and I realize emptiness. So now I'm a holy being. But that's really quite wrong because there's no way you can can be your surrender. When you surrender, you're not there anymore. Exactly. It it becomes you. You give yourself to it. So you never possess even the experience yeah. of it in a certain way. You know, uh, you follow me? Absolutely, yeah. I used to sit in front of Maharaji mm-hmm. day after day. Mm-hmm. And one day I was sitting there and I realized, I laughed out loud actually to myself <laughs> because I realized I was waiting there. I, I was waiting for something to happen. Uh-huh. I was waiting to be liberated, free, uh-huh. nirvana. and But I re- laughed because my... My under my my uh, implied understanding of that was someplace I would not be, <laughs> somewhere else than here, and I laughed in that moment because I saw and felt very uh-huh. clearly that there was no place I would not be ever. I was here. I would always be here. Uh-huh. It wasn't something. There was nothing else out uh-huh. there. So. You know, and it was really a, a, a quite a moment for me, you know. <laughs> and what did he say or do when what, you laughed? No, I don't think he did anything. He just threw he a didn't banana. Do anything? Maybe he threw a banana at me. I don't know. <laughs> he must have smiled. You know, one time he said, uh, yes. he said, Dada, I could have been a real... Dada was his disciple. Dada means elder brother. Yeah. And uh, when Maharaji first met this man and started calling him Dada... Uh-huh. He he wanted Maharaji's wife. Uh, he wanted Dada's wife. Oh, to call him Dada. I see. And she said, "He's not my Dada. He's my husband." Maharaji said, "If he's my Dada, he's your Dada." <laughs> <laughs> so from then on, she had to call her husband elder brother. You know, so. so anyway, one day he says, "He said, Dada, I could have been a really big saint. I could have been a really big saint, Dada, but I had one fault." What's that, Baba? He said. Too much compassion. <laughs> Too much compassion, he said. Yeah. Too much compassion. And you know... Did he, he elaborate? Was, what's that? Hey, did he elaborate? No, he didn't elab- do a lot of elaboration, ever. <laughs> so too much compassion made him not be a really big saint. A big saint in the sense of being uh, famous and wearing red robes, mm-hmm. orange robes and mm-hmm. having a big thing and driving in fancy cars and having, you know... A mm-hmm. lot of PR done everywhere. That that kind of big saint, famous, right, right. big, you know, right. well, you know that those. Right. He was. He used to sit in the road. Right. This is this is like, you know, he just walked and he'd sit down anywhere. It was all emptiness. There was no place that it wasn't perfectly fine to just be. He'd sit down in the road. He would sit down in shit. He would sit down anywhere. It made no difference to him. Right. Really, he didn't look for a clean place to sit down. He, he plop, plotzed, to use a Yiddish term, which is uh, really, there's no exact Sanskrit equivalent to that. <laughs> Maybe in Tibetan there's one, but not plots. Sanskrit. Plots. I, he just, he, you know, where to plots? Where to just let it all... <laughs> that's plotting. Anyway. No, 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 and only funny. a mensch can do that. You know, not a schmendrick. Only a mensch. Can do that. Yeah, okay, we won't go there today. So, um, yeah, there were a lot of things like that. Where, But his implication that he, all he, there was so much 
caring and compassion for all anyone and everything that came to him that he couldn't keep anything for himself even him even to separate himself from people and be a great saint with people and he had there was no one between him there was no anybody running the show like in those days if you were in the temple with Maharaja uh-huh. he was sitting there he was doing everything you know in fact he'd say um, he'd say when people come here they should feel like they're going to their grandfather's house. Uh-huh. Everything is given. You want to cook your food, we'll give you pots and pans. What do you want to do? It's all fine. There's no, there was no like higher and lower and, and uh-huh. grandos, grandiosity. It was it's just on the outside. But on the other hand, you would look at him and you would see the beauty and radiance of the whole universe shining. And your mind would just, you couldn't pull yourself away from that. You couldn't, you didn't want to turn your eyes for a second. It was, he was always looking, especially the Westerners, you know, I mean the Indians too, but uh, he would always look at the Westerners and go like this, hey, you know, (laughs) see like this. uh, He used to say about the Westerners, he used to tell the Indian people, he'd say, these people only they only want God. They we we look at them like, what? What are you talking about? You know, we didn't even understand. You know, they only they only want God. You you miserable shits want you know come here for everything, jobs, children. You want this fixed. You want because that's what a saint does in India. Oh, to the Indians, he said. The Indians, yeah. The, you know, a saint in India who has siddhis, who has powers. People come to them for everything. They're poor. They don't. There's no. You're sick. He says, "Here, take this. You know, here, eat, take some of these ashes." And you know, one time a, a a young couple came up from the plains. They took buses and trains and buses, and finally got to the temple. And they said that they came to Maharaji and they said, "You know, your devotee, my grandfather, is very, very ill. He's suffering terribly. You know, Maharaji, here, take this banana and feed it to him." Subti Kojaga, everything will be all right. He always said that, by the way. Whether, it, whether you, no matter what would happen, it's, it would be all right. So they, they go back, they carry this banana, you know, all the way by bus and by train, you know, and they give it to their grandfather, and everything's going to be all right. He takes one bite, leaves the body. Subti Kojaga, everything's all right, you know. He was holding on to something, he was suffering, he couldn't let go. Yes. Boom. That was what was supposed to happen. One time, uh, Mr. Tawari, who was a great yogi and very close disciples, they were up on the roof of the temple, I think, and Maharaji started dancing in ecstasy, dancing around. He said, oh, she's gone. And he was saying this old devotee of his, this old lady from the plains, had died. I mean, nobody told him, but he knew. He said, oh, she's gone, she's gone. And Tawari starts saying, you butcher. He says oh, to really? his guru, he says to guru, you butcher. <laughs> she served you for 30 years, night and day. How can you be so, how can you be in ecstasy when she's done? And he looked at him and said, what? You want me to act like one of the puppets like you? You want me to what? One of the puppets. You want me to act like one of the puppets? You want me to pretend <laughs> I'm one of the puppets like you? Really? Yeah. That's really great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
But also she was probably very relieved to be out of the carcass that wasn't functioning well at, at her yeah. age. Yeah. People already people do die when they want to. Yeah. Actually, unless they yeah. they ate some Monsanto beforehand or something that gets a little quicker. But otherwise they die they die when they're tired of it. Yeah. When they're ready. And they and then their soul is released and they have a dance in their subtle body. That's right. He was dancing with her. You know, it was to sit with somebody like that. That's true. Who knows the past and the future and everything that's happening in the present moment, even in your own miserable mind. It's just, after a while, you, you just, you have to let go of your stuff because it, there's nowhere to hang it, you know. He didn't, he didn't buy into he knew your storyline, of course. He knew it perfectly. He knew everything you thought about yourself. But like you said before, a perfect, perfect being sees everything. He sees all that. He sees that you don't see it's perfect. Mm -hmm. And what else could they do but try to help you see its perfection? Mm -hmm. You know, the only reason these great beings stay here is out of compassion for us. Absolutely. They have no program, no agenda of their own. There's no one in there to have an agenda. Mm -hmm. Interesting story. One time, Ram Dass was completely pissed off, really angry. Well, Maharaj used to drive him out of his mind. And he would get so furious, right? So one time he comes up to Maharaji, and he sits down and he said, Maharaji, I want you to raise my kundalini. <laughs> and he's like, I want you to raise my kundalini. And Maharaji says... Oh, you know, I don't know anything about that. You know, you go see Muktananda. He can do that. He'll do that. Yeah, you go see him. Ramdas get angrier. He said, Baba, I want you to raise my kundalini. Oh, Sai Baba. Go see Sai Baba. He'll do that. He can do, oh, he'll do that for you. And Ramdas got angrier. He said, no, Maharaji, I want you to raise my kundalini. So Maharaji got up. He'd been sitting on the bench. He's, he got up. He threw his blanket over his shoulder and he looked down at Ramdas and he said, I only know two things, Ra and Ma, the two syllables of the name of Ram. And then he left Ramdas sitting there, went into his room. <laughs> we attributed a personality to him. We attributed someone who wanted to help us. We attributed somebody... With likes and dislikes, he liked this one, he didn't like this one, you know. But his reality was Rama. There was no one in there to do anything, to want anything, to have any preferences. There was only ek, sub ek, Ram, all the time. Only that's the only, That was what he was seeing. He had no, uh, what's the word? Uh, and there's a word for it in Sanskrit. But he had no desires of his own, no preferences, no agenda, nothing that he didn't need anything to make him happy. You know, he had already become everything. So you sit with it being like that and you just kind of, stuff starts to just fall off of you, your arms, your legs, <laughs> everything falls off. Because you're running your, your stuff through emptiness through a being that's only love and compassion and kindness 
There's nothing else in there. Reality's in there. And you're sitting with that. And everything that being does reflects that to you all the time, no matter what you're doing. One time, uh, you know, the big thing was to grab his hand when he got up to walk, right? Uh-huh. Somebody would, and he would hold your hand because he walked like a two-year-old, like bang, 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 like this. So one time I got his hand. Got his hand. Yes, and I'm, we're walking. So he walked, we walked at the back of the temple and he's kind of looking at me and laughing. And ah, look at this guy. So we got to the back of the temple and he let go of my hand and he took a few steps. So I took a few steps. <laughs> and he said something which I didn't understand in Hindi. And he took a few steps. So I took a few steps. Finally, he just went like this. And he knelt down and he peed. He just wanted a couple of feet. That's all, just a little space to pee. And I wasn't going to give it to him. And he realized that, so he just, okay. And he, it was a great moment. Talk about mind stopping. He pees. So. Uh, I love that. When Zonkapa, at the age of 41, attained perfect enlightenment, he said at some later moment that the reality of things was the opposite from what he had expected. Mm. And he had been an absolute top scholar and, and also a great yogi, mm. had many ex- supernormal experiences and so on since the age of like four or three, when he automatically knew to be, he didn't have to learn to read and everything. Wow. And yet when he, when he did have the final moment, final clarity, let's say, mm-hmm. final surrender, mm-hmm. he, uh, he said it was opposite from what he expected. Exactly the opposite of what I expected, yeah. Yeah, he said. Yeah. And then how do we understand that everybody had some, they don't, they don't really tackle it. Yeah. But I think it is like you discover that you are everybody else. You thought you'd have this thing all to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's that, yeah. That's right. You thought you'd have it all to yourself. Yeah. And it's everybody's. Then you become the servant of those who don't know that they have it. Mm. The servant. Too much com- That's too much compassion. Yeah, the That's- servant. That's, you know, that's Hanuman. That's what Hanuman is. Not only is, on one hand, is the destroyer of calamities and obstacles, remover of obstacles, but he serves sure. that part of you to, to enter into. Well, this is definitely a research project I, I'm going to embark on. And we, we need a Hanuman statue here, at, uh, if you know oh, really? a good sculptor or a good source. Uh-huh. Here at Menla, we have Ganesha, but we don't have Hanuman. Wonderful. We really need Hanuman. Great. But you know the thing about the Tibetan legend, about how they, the origin of the Tibetans? Do you know mm, that? You tell. Tell. So, well, the, you know, the, uh, first of all, in the Indian, actually, it's an Indian thing, in the Karandavyuha Sutra, ancient Indian Sutra, where Avalokiteshvara is introduced, the Lord that looks down with loving concern at all beings, that, that is, you know, Avalokiteshvara, a Buddha, a Bodhisattva who is considered the emanation of the infinite compassion of infinite Buddhas. Mm. 
uh, he, so that's the first thing. He, he emanates in any kind of form that beings need, either divine or human or animal or anything, even as an inanimate object, if that's what they need. Mm. And um, there's their idea. And then the Tibetan legend is that he was in, the, in a lifetime of a monk, monkey. Uh-huh. And But they never tell you the name. So far, I didn't find the name in any uh-huh. text. But I haven't really looked because I didn't really mm-hmm. connect it in my mind with Hanuman. Till lately, I think, some earlier time we were talking, I did, but I didn't have time mm-hmm. to follow up. And he was a monk monkey. He was a monkey who was a monk. Mm-hmm. And he was enacting his vow to his guru, who was Amitabha, the Buddha of the Western uh-huh. Paradise, uh-huh. The, the, the Buddha of ruby-colored Buddha, and his vow to, to save the Tibetans, who were very f- aggressive and, and wild and crazy, something like that. Mm-hmm. And he went and meditated. No, that's not, not yet his vow. But maybe it was, but there were no Tibetans, that's right. So he went to the mountain Himalaya and he was meditating, this monkey monk. Monkey monk. And then there was a rock ogress who lived in that mountain. Uh-huh. A demoness. Yeah, like yeah, a demoness. Like a, uh-huh. And she fell in love with the Avalokiteshvara monkey monk. So she tried everything in the book to seduce him. <laughs> That's a hell of a and book. And she failed. But she finally said to him that she was going to fling herself off the mountain. She was going to fling herself If off. he didn't marry her. So then he, the, the emanation of Avalokiteshvara, who was the monkey monk, monk monkey, he asked uh, his own sort of origin form or something like the celestial bodhisattva. Mm-hmm. He said, look, I know I'm a monk and I have a monk's vow, but this very nice demoness is going to kill herself if I don't <laughs> marry her. So may I please resign my monkhood? And so, of course, you know, whatever, sure, if you want to do that to help her. So then they, 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 from their union came the Tibetan people. Uh-huh. So they're the cross between a monk, monkey, a, a, a compassion bodhisattva monkey, mm. and, her, and a demoness. And that, but that gave birth to the Tibetans. Mm. So there could be in the future a kind of wonderful yeah. you know, international... <laughs> like saying, uh, we, if we, if one could discover that that Hanuman is is a form of that compassion, you know. Well, you know, and his Hanum- name might have been Hanuman. Well, uh huh. Because Hanuman is actually a form of Shiva. Do you know that? Yeah, but he's a form of Avalokiteshvara. That's my point exactly. <laughs> There's eleven Rudras. There's eleven faces of of Shiva, Hanuman, uh-huh. and the most powerful one is the eleventh Rudra, which has the face of a monkey. Really? Oh, cool. And that's uh, Shiva sent his energy down through the wind god uh-huh. into who then impregnated Anjana, who was uh-huh. a, a vanar, not actually a monkey, but it's a who was a race of they could mostly monkey form, but they could take any form. They were semi divine. Right. So it was through the ener- Shiva's energy through the wind god that that was Hanuman. Is Hanuman? Is it? Yeah. Well, you know that other thing you said about Gosip Muktananda. Yeah. I met uh, Muktananda and. Uh, and Ramdas in uh, in Pune uh-huh. one Pune? time uh-huh. in 1971. Uh-huh. I think it was 71. And um, it was like some sort of puja or celebration somewhere or something. And then and I were there with the babies. And uh, Ramdas was complaining to us. <laughs> 
He had such a headache. <laughs> his headache had been aching for weeks. Mm. And he couldn't get rid of this headache. So I think he went to get his Kundalini raised yeah, yeah, no, by someone. Yeah. And then it ran into something in his head. Yeah. And he had a terrible headache. And he was kind of playing. You could see he was kind of blaming Muktananda about it. Yeah, Muktananda yeah, looked yeah. a little cranky too. <laughs> to it's very funny. I just saw that. Yeah. Such a headache. He, he really he bitterly complained to some of his old friends from pre Robert Baba Ramdas days about yes. the headache. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't know any of the backstory, unfortunately. Right. Well, actually, that must have happened before this this last story, because he was on tour with Muktananda when he came back to India, and then we went. I must have been there actually. In Pune at that time? Because we came back, Maharaji... Maharaji wasn't there. No, no, but he sent us down because Ramdas had promised Muktananda he would do a yatra with him around South India. That wasn't in 71? It was. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, but it was, but the, the, the story about the raising Kundalini with Maharaji was later. Oh, I see. Yeah, but, so but he still, the, it still had It was a little tongue-in-cheek, you know, you go see Muktananda, he'll do that. You go see Sai Baba. You know. <laughs> and then Maharaji says, what do I know about that? All I know. Well, let's see, he just said that. He knew perfectly well. Yeah. Rama. Rama. Ra, Ra is seed syllable of fire. Mm. You know? Yeah. Ma is seed syllable of emptiness. Mm. One of them. Anyway. Fire and emptiness. But, you know, people, if they get their kundalini raised in the wrong time, I, I was once contacted by the Catholic Diocese of New York. And they asked me if I did exorcisms. <laughs> and I said that I didn't, but that, um, that I, I knew some lamas who had told stories like that might indicate they might be able to. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't say for sure that they could, but the particular one. And uh, so they begged me to, to go see the, a client of theirs who was a Jewish woman who had had her kundalini raised by a swami. Mm. Like, apparently not. Well, I didn't, they didn't really have a full explanation, but she said she had the most terrible situation she was in. Mm. And then she had converted to Catholicism in order to get those exorcists, the church exorcists, yeah, to yeah. help her. Because sure. she was in such yeah. agony. Mm. Had been for years. So they gave me the address and they begged. And I said, okay, I'll try to take Then I asked one lahama. I won't mention who. And then we went down there in the west side, in the uh, 20s, above Chelsea. And, and they went into this apartment, and this woman was in bedridden, and then some parents or uncles or somebody were taking care of her. And then she told this story that was very, very vivid about how she had in the, lived in the Bronx at that time and met some Swami, and then the Swami had raised her Kundalini, and then she had just gotten into total agony and she lived in a state of constant vision of being somewhere in around some duni, you know, some fire place mm. with a bunch of cities. And they were poking the fire. Every time they would poke the chimta into the fire, she would have more agony and all this kind of thing. So then the, the lama said she should practice exchange of self and other. Mm. And she should practice using the pain to absorb the pains from all suffering beings. You know, like, an, um, like a bodhisattva practice like mm -hmm. that. And she became furious. She what? Furious. She became absolutely outraged. Wow. So it didn't really work. Uh -huh. 
<laughs> I have enough pain. You want me to take more pain? He went oh, and and wacky. Yeah, yeah. So then, uh, then he said, then we sort of excused it. Then he said, well, okay, I think you need it. What you really need is a, is another Kundalini oil, you know, a specialist, a Swami mm-hmm. type, because that's how it started. So they would be able maybe to help you. And then we kind of fled, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think he was being kind to Ram Dass not to do that. Yeah. Rather than just well, didn't know, yeah. I'm sure he didn't know. You know, there, a couple of one guy came up from Muktananda's ashram, and there's mm-hmm. no criticism of Muktananda. This guy was already on the edge, and yes. by the time he got up to the hills where we were, he was ra- he was out of his mind. And we were staying in town at, in Nanital, and right next to the hotel that we were staying was this old church, and they had still had services on Sunday. So one Sunday, this guy takes all his clothes off and he walks over to the church and goes up on the pulpit and starts giving a speech. <laughs> and the I, naked truth. The naked, the naked. <laughs> <laughs> so then the next day he came, we all went to the, he put his clothes back on late eventually and we went to the temple the next day and he came in front of Maharaji. Maharaji just went, So from that day on, for about two weeks, he didn't speak. And every day, at the end of two weeks, he was perfectly reasonably normal. He wasn't normal in the first place. (laughs) He came back to what he was before. Just... I guess. I guess. You know, that's the thing. Nothing ever happened around Maharaji. We heard stories from this Baba, that Baba, people jumping up and barking like dogs and... Flapping their wings like chickens and all that right, shit, right. you know. We would sit there and nothing like that ever happened. It was just only love. You know? That's it. Right. Only love and only sweetness. And every once in a while a bop on the head, you know. But uh, yeah, it was just something else altogether. Something else. Casey Wonga was a bit like that. Yeah. When he was younger then. When he got a bit older, then it was people around him and so on. It was a little bit difficult. It wasn't quite the same. But he was, he, he, his presence was like him. Yeah. You wanna... It was enough to just be in his presence. I'm sorry? Yeah, it was enough to feel his presence. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, it was all we wanted. It's a field, it's a field thing. Yeah. There's stories about the Buddha like that. That my favorite is his first, his first lay disciple was someone called Yashas, who was a merchant's son. He was a yapi, a banker's son, Setiputta, <laughs> and he had been in the forest with his friends, uh, having a party with some call girls. And then he and his friends were drugged and rolled. Ooh. So their American Express cards had been taken, and their jewels, and then it was Indian. They, they Indian Express cards, jewels and yeah, jewels and crowns and oh. rings and all the fancy things, and uh, very wealthy. And they, so he was like hungover, and he had been drugged, and he was furious, and he was looking for the, the, the girls who had rolled him, and he was running through the woods. And he somehow came upon Buddha and his monks who were sitting at the foot of trees meditating. And so he asked Buddha, 
He said, did you see them girls running with a bunch of clothes and two jewels and this and that? I'm looking for them. They took my stuff. And then Buddha said to him, well, would you rather find the girls in your clothes and the jewels? Or would you prefer to attain nirvana? <laughs> so the guy says, oh, nirvana, of course. <laughs> Sits down. And in eight hours, he attained it. Really? Yeah. We got a little teaching for Noble Truths. You know, a little teaching. The reality. Yeah. A little bit of analysis. And then at some point, his parents, who were worried about him, looking for him, mm-hmm. like in the evening, what happened to him, you know, type of thing. Where's our yashas? And they came. They heard he might be have stopped with Buddha and people, and they came. And then Buddha knew that they would interrupt him in his attainment of nirvana. So he made him invisible oh. temporarily where they couldn't see him. I mean, or, you know, behind a blanket or something or whatever. Yeah. They say made him invisible. Uh-huh. And he might have, he actually had the ability to do that, and he sure. might have done that. He, yeah. And and so then he chatted ni- nicely with the parents. And then uh, for for another extra hour or something, had monks bring them tea and chatted with them. And then he did break through, and he had a realization of the nature of reality as nirvana, the, the yashas, at least some stage of it. And then he removed the invisibility thing. They said, oh, Yasha, there you are. You know? <laughs> and they said, they rushed up in, uh, to embrace Yasha. And Yasha was like, oh, mom and dad, nice. <laughs> I'm so happy. And uh, I just heard a short teaching from this, uh, this uh, wanderer here, the Buddha. And uh, everything is perfect. I love you deeply. <laughs> I think I'll stay with him, though. Oh, uh-huh. that'd be good, they said. Oh, wow. They agreed right away. Mm. And they became big dhanapatis, you know, sponsors uh-huh. of the community. Wow. But it, it, it's, a, it's a story that is utterly impossible, except that the presence field was yeah. so powerful that when one entered it, one had a different vision of oneself yeah. Yeah. completely. Yeah. And a much preferable one, actually. Much more open one. You know, there's a beautiful story about the Baal Shem Tov. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, for you, you, those of you who don't know, the Baal Shem Tov was a, a Jewish mystic in the 1600s, I think. I'm not sure. He actually was the first Hasidic Jew. He started that. That's why they all dressed like that. That was the hot style in the 1600s in Poland. So, or the Ukraine, it was kind of around there. But he had, of course, he had recognized reality, and he was, but he wasn't ready to be public. So uh-huh. he and his wife moved out to the forest, and they they uh, ran a small inn just in the in the woods on on the, one of the traveling roads. And every day, that, that uh, was in Europe, wasn't it? Yeah, Poland, Russia, yeah, right, and, right, right. So every day he would go off in the morning into the into the woods, into the mountains, and do his practices. But if he was needed, his wife would just go. Uh, his name was Israel. Uh, she would just go out of the house and go Israel, and he would be there immediately, like you know, come from manifest miles away, just like this. So one day she called him because a rabbi had arrived at the the inn. So he comes in and he was dressed like a, a you know a rustic person, and he a rough kind of person. And he comes in, he takes the rabbi's horses and he says, so you'll stay with us for the, sh- for the Sabbath, which was like four days away. 
And the rabbi was on his way to a wedding on the Sabbath in another town. So, so he's, he looks at the rabbi and he smiles at him and he says, so you'll stay for the Sabbath? And the rabbi was very proper, like a, you know, and he said, no, I'm going to so and so place. I won't be here for the Sabbath. Oh, okay. And he takes his horses and the rabbi goes in, has a meal, goes to sleep, gets up in the morning. The, the, the Baal Shem brings him his horses. He gets on his, his uh, whatever it is, buggy and goes down the road. And he's riding, riding, and he's going down the road, going down the road, and he kind of gets all spaced out, and he opens his eyes, and he's back at the inn, and the Baal Shem's holding his horses. <laughs> and he's totally confused. And the Baal Shem says, uh, Baal Shem says, oh, come on, come inside and have your, have your food. So he just, okay, okay. He goes in, he eats, has his thing, goes to sleep. Happens every day for three days. <laughs> On the fourth day, or whatever the last day was to be, he's, as he's riding away, he uh, begins to have a meltdown, a total meltdown, a total nervous breakdown. And he looks around him. He's, all of a sudden, all he sees is suffering. Oh. Everywhere that all beings are, mm. are lonely and separated from each other and by a huge uh, chasm. Everybody's alone and... <laughs> They're all suffering and there's no connection and everywhere and all these beings are, and he's flipping out and he's yelling at God, what is this? How could this be? How could this be? And and, uh, he hears a voice coming in this kind of huge space, just whispering words. And he sees that all the beings are are relaxing and softening and They're attracted to this voice and they're all coming together. And he opens his eyes and the Baal Shem Tov is holding his horses (laughs) and smiling at him. And he realizes the voice he heard was the voice of the Baal Shem. And the idea is that all these beings, when we see ourselves through the eyes of love, through the Guru's eyes, through the Siddha's eyes, through the Yogi's eyes, through the, the saint's eyes, we see the oneness in us. We see the, 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 the love, and it, break, it brings us all together. We see ourselves through those eyes. This is what it is to be with a great lama, a great saint. And uh, so that was, the, that was the Baal Shem becoming the public, his first public thing. And from that, that guy became his disciple, and from there on it, it went, you know, it's, Beautiful, beautiful stuff. That's really great. It, it reminds me of this uh, this moment. I was just reading a life of Rumi. Mm-hmm. And someone wrote Brad Gooch. It's going to be soon published. It's a really good one. And when he first met Shamsi Tabriz, you know, who became yeah. his great guru and inspiration. Yeah, sure. Shams. The Shams he rushed up and uh, walked up to him in the street. He'd never met him. He was on a horse himself. Yeah, he was a in horseman. procession, actually, wasn't he? Rumi was with his all his... The, the, yeah, yeah, he yeah. was with all his followers. All his he was always a great teacher, yeah, yeah, poet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was incredibly accomplished yeah, already. Sure. Yeah. Extraordinary. And he was going somewhere to do a teaching or something in Konya. He was on a horse. And then uh, Shams came up and... 
in a friendly way and greeted him and took hold of the bridle of the horse to, to have a little chat with him or something. And then he asked him something about um, uh, another uh, Sufi who had had a vision of Muhammad. And then, but somehow the, the thing about it was that the question was, uh, there were two other Sufis who had, had visions of Muhammad and one of them then became, remained as the total devotee of Muhammad. And the other one started like giving sort of elaborated teachings based on the authority of his vision. I think was the difference. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not totally clear to remember. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely clear. And uh, he asked Rumi, which one was did he think was more far out, you know, more appropriate, et cetera, something like that. And Rumi said, Rumi, Rumi said, you should stay with the vision of Muhammad. Mm-hmm. There's nothing greater than that, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than add your own something to it, something like that. Mm-hmm. And somehow through that thing, then the two of them went off and spent like six months just in locked up in a room together, on top of yeah. a room, on top of a goldsmith who was a student of Rumi's, uh, protected from all the followers and everybody. Yeah, yeah. And everybody was really pissed off yeah. and freaked out. And uh, and Rumi like completely changed his whole yeah. thing, but it had to do with this faith actually. Yeah, it had to do with something with faith. Yeah, very much, very much. He had to do with love too. Absolutely, the, the love that he felt for Shams. And it just totally wiped out his mind, you know. But they were and seeing Muhammad also as love, as a figure of love, actually. Yeah, sure. You know, they were seeing him totally, not just as something he was like channeling the love of God's love. You know, yeah. Rumi, Rumi had that, right? Yeah. Rumi was, when Rumi's funeral came, I was very surprised. At his funeral, there were more Christians than Jews in the city, <laughs> Greeks and, and Jews in uh, the city. Really? Came out practically than his Muslim followers, and the Muslim followers didn't really realize how popular he was with the members of the other faiths. Uh-huh. And they were trying to chase them away, <laughs> like monopolize, and make it a Muslim affair, and it was not. It was a, a oh, you know, inter, interfaith affair, you know? Yeah. So yeah. wonderful. Yeah. But the Baljam talks, right? He sounds like it reminds me of like some Sita, Indian Sita. Absolutely, yeah, there's an incredible book. That's called. my thing about the Jewish people. They, they, the whole legend of Adam leaving Eden. I think they all came from India, uh-huh. not just from Ur. You know, what is Ur? Some like dusty town, someplace in Iran. Mm-hmm. They came from India. True, and they were real Indian yogis, I think. Originally, mm. and they, they sort of then they mixed that up Abraham and Adam and I don't know Abraham. <coughs> Abraham was, is Abram. Abram, yeah, B R H M in both languages and vowel signs. Abram, yeah, sure. Yeah, actually, Abram. Bra- Abraham. So it's not really a name; Brahman. it's just like oh, there's Abram, Abram. No. So I, that's what I think. And the Tsar of David, Seal of Solomon, you know, is the Shiva Shakti. Mm. Symbol and the Vajra Yogini you know, symbol. It's the heart chakra, actually. Yeah. Symbol of heart chakra. Six fold knot around the central channel in the heart where uh-huh. the super subtle soul is kept. Anyway, yeah, that's, what, that's what they are. That's a story of faith, too, you know. They had a longer wandering. Yeah. God said to Abraham, What? God said to Abraham, Yes. Kill me a son. Abe said, oh, yeah. God, you must be putting me on. God said, Abe. Abe said, What? God said, Abe, you can do what you want to, but the next time you see me coming, man, you better run. <laughs> really? Abe said, God, where do you want this killing done? God said, way out on Highway 61. Oh, yeah. oh that's, that's different. 
Yeah, that's right. So, he's also Jewish, by the way. That, you know, that story in the Abrahamic tradition is the parallel to the Vesantara story. The which story? Vesantara. Vesantara. Yeah, uh -huh. the, the Buddha's immediate previous life to being Shakya, Siddhartha, you know, and Shakyamuni, uh -huh. is said to be where he was Vesantara. Uh -huh. Vesa means Vaishya, you know, merchant class. You know? Uh -huh. But he was a king, he was the king's son. And he, but he, in that life, he had this thing about generosity. Uh -huh. He's, you know, his vow was from from when he could speak. Actually, when his mo his mother was pregnant, they had her kind of keep her controlled, because when she if she was out in town and she would take off her clothes, her jewels, and she would just be giving everything to everybody. Uh -huh. She was like a channel of generosity mm -hmm. when he was in the womb, in that life. And then he himself, once he was born, he was always giving, and it was a very very wealthy kingdom. And so they had four almshouses on the four gates of the city. Mm. And he would go, all he did, the prince, everybody loved him, of course. Mm. And all he did, he was really beautiful, and blah, blah, blah. And all he did was go from gatehouse to gatehouse day after day and give away whatever anybody asked him for. Mm. And um, then and his wife, Madri was her name. Madri. She was in love with him, of course. And he said, no, no, you don't want to marry me. And she said, why? He said, well, if anybody asks me for you, I will give you away. That's why. Or if we have children, I'll give them away. <laughs> and, she, and she said, I don't care. I love you. You can do whatever, you know. Uh -huh. And, you know, because in that society, you, you, the man sort of owned the family, right? Yeah. So, so therefore, could be asked to give it. So then one day, some spies came from the neighboring kingdom and proposing as, as needy Brahmins. And they asked him to give them the national defense elephant, a uh -huh. giant tusker, you know, that was like defeat anybody in any battle, you know, like huge giant thing, like the aircraft carrier, right. you know, <laughs> of the town. You know? And he said, sure, you can have it here. You take it. Oh. And then the citizens rebelled and they asked that he be executed. And he was like a menace. They, they, got, they turned completely against wow. him. Mm. And they, they said he was a menace. And the father... Uh, didn't want to execute him, but he said, well, I have to do something to, f f to to satisfy my subjects and my ministers, so I banish you to such and such a, you know, black mountain. And so he said, okay, I'll go over there. And then uh, Ben Madri and the two children, by that time, they wanted to go with him, and he said, no, no, don't come with me, I'll give you away. You know? And uh, you don't want to come with me, just stay in town here. And they said, no, no, we're going with you. you know? So then he sets out in proper princely fashion with chariot and horses and you know, equipment and baggage, whatever. But he doesn't get too far. And he's given it all away and they're walking on foot. Mm. Finally, they get to the mountain. And then in the mountain, the, all the animals stop hunting each other and it, it creates like a paradise there, you know, because yeah, yeah. there's powerful generosity. Mm. And then the, the bad guy, of the story is an old Brahmin who married a very young wife who has other appetites than him. And she wants to have, and she hears that he has two princely children. He's the guy off in the woods and that he gives anything you ask. So he, she tells the husband, you go ask for those children. I want them as servants. So then uh, the wife is out gathering nuts and berries and honey or whatever. And he's there with his kids and this, this old Brahmin comes up. And the Brahmin says, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, I need your children to be my servants. And the children hear the conversation and they run off and they hide in a stream 
with a little straw, like a snorkel. Uh, yeah. You know, they have this straw which they're breathing through and they're invisible yeah. in the yeah, stream. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, he goes and he catches them and he gives them away. Wow. And it's a, and then they're screaming, no, no, he's a goblin. He's going to cook us and eat us. No, daddy. No, and actually he goes for his bow, you know, to shoot the old Brahmin, not to do, not to do his generosity vow. And then he puts it down. Remember, this is his life, his giving. So he actually gives them away in, to their uncertain fate. And then, uh, and then uh, Madri comes back. Where's the kids? You know, it's, well, I told you, you know, I gave them to the old Brahmin. And, ah, she passes out. And then a little bit later, she's in consulate, of course. And then disconsolate and unconsolable. And then, then Indra comes down as another creepy, uh, creeped out Brahmin. And, you know, Shakra, Indra, what they call And he asked for her. And he, hey, oh, great, here, you're going to have and then it's nothing, you know. Mm. But it's a terrible, and that story, you know, the, for thousands of years they've been arguing, and they have a passion play about it, you know, mm -hmm. in Buddhist societies. Yeah. And they argue and they say, that's just those monks who are like making nasty about the family, you know, and giving away the kids, you know, that's horrible and terrible. Just like you have that about the Abraham thing. Why would he be willing to do that? Right. Right. And he's almost ready, has raised the knife to yeah. sacrifice his own son. And uh, then God says, no, no, it's just a test, you know, right? Yeah. And, um, and it's similarly in the Buddhist story, it ends well because the, the old uh, Brahmin goes through the home city on the way taking the kids back to the, to the wife. And then the king recognizes his grandchildren and then he buys them off the guy. And then they, everybody in the town feels guilty that they banished him and they invite him back. Uh -huh. It's a celebration, you know, at the end. And this was... And Indra was just Indra, so he doesn't, you know, he gives back the wife. Nice. You know? It's just a final test. He wanted to help him finish his vow, you know? Of course. Yeah, he was totally selfless. Huh? He was totally selfless, yeah. Indra. Yeah. No, no, Indra no. could be very naughty. He could be. Yeah. Could be, but not, usually not around the Buddha, actually. Probably. He tried to behave himself. And that's the, pre the Buddha's previous... Just, just before his enlightenment. Just before his enlightenment. So the generosity... Transcendent mm. generosity. Mm. I mean, he had many other lives of gen in the generosity category. One of the freakiest ones that my Sanskrit teacher so much hated, where he was the king of Shibi, was his name. And this blind person came and said, you know, I want your eyes. Mm -hmm. And so the king of Shibi said, oh, wonderful. Somebody asked me finally for something that, that is hard to give. And that's, wow, I really want to do that. So let's, let's do it. And he calls the surgeons in, you know, and everybody's just weeping and screaming. No, the king can't be blind. You know, the, car, the country will be defenseless, blah, blah, blah. And it was another previous life. Mm. And so he then says, no, no, no. And he brings the surgeons and then he won't be anesthetized because he wants to make sure they don't make, pretend to botch the job and then claim they couldn't do it or whatever mm. it is. And he's there and he's just, he's in ecstasy giving away the eyes terrible pain, you know, pulling out the optic nerve or whatever it was. And then they're implanted in the blind beggar and everybody's still completely berserk. And then he does the act of truth, you know, satyagraha, the origin of the concept of satyagraha, the act of truth. And he says, look, I can't, what can I do to shut you people up? You don't realize I'm really happy that this challenge was put to me and I, I rose to it. He said, I'm very, very, this is a great thing. I'm going to have like, like eagle's eyes. I'm going to have Buddha eyes very soon in another mm -hmm. life. And then uh, uh, they were like that. So he said, look, if, it's, if I'm telling the truth that this was a pleasure for me, it was, I'm delighted about it. It's totally great. Let my eyes be restored. 
so you guys can calm down. And bang, he had them back. That's the actual truth. Mm-hmm. You know, which is in Indian history. Mm-hmm. It's sweet stories. Yeah, it's a sweet story. All those, the Jataka tales. Yeah. Yeah. They're really amazing. There was another one where previously Buddha was Indra. Achha. And in that life, he was the Indra of that universe or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And he was making war, defending the city on top of Mount Meru and making war on the Asuras. Because mm-hmm. they were always trying to attack the city, you know, Sudarshana, yeah. the Indra city, yeah. the Olympus sort of city. Yeah, yeah. So he's making war. And then the battle went against the Devas for once, temporarily. Mm-hmm. So he was retreating to regroup. And his charity was driving him down a narrow forest path. And, you know, those charities have a high pole, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he saw that the pole was about to knock an eagle nest down, and there were eagle chicklings in the eagle nest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he tells yeah. the charity, stop, stop. So what do you mean we're getting away from the Asuras are chasing us, mm-hmm. the titans, you know. He says, yeah, I know, but we... Can you get around it? No, I can't go in this direction. I can't get around it. Mm. Well, we can't go that way then. Go back. But, but your majesty, you're going right into the teeth of the army, of the Titan army. They're going to kill you. They're going to do something, blah, blah, blah. Never mind. Those eagles are not in this battle. I'm not going to make them collateral damage. Mm. He says, turn around. I have no business harming the eagle chicks there. So somehow they they manhandled the chariot around, and they charged back that way. And then, again, then they, but then they, when Asura see him coming, they think he's got the reinforcements already, and they all run away. <laughs> yeah, I love that one because it's this little tiny detail, you know. Yeah, Indian sure. storytelling is so yeah. fantastic. Yeah, right. Okay, I think it's time, isn't it? Yeah, it's time. Is it time. Yeah, why don't we sing for a few minutes? Okay. Just a few, few, and then, yeah. Okay. Who's going to sing? Your okay. folks are coming back? They didn't go anywhere. Sing. Wake up. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to They're around. They're always around, lurking in the dark. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. There they are. <clears throat> <laughs>